Welcome back to another episode of Control All Career. I'm your host, Jennifer Ong, and in this podcast, I interview people who have taken a leap of faith and pursued an alternative career path here in Asia. Before I get started with today's episode, just like to let you guys know that I do have a one-on-one career coaching program. So if you're feeling unfulfilled or unhappy at your perfect on paper corporate job and looking to find a job that's a bit more fulfilling, well then send me a message on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore or via LinkedIn. I'd love to see how I can help. Link to both my Instagram handle as well as my LinkedIn profile is in the show notes to today's episode. All right, let's get into today's episode. This episode is a little bit different because I hear what you guys are saying and you want me to showcase more guests who are currently in a full-time corporate job, but have also been able to balance a successful side hustle. So I thought Yichen would be a really great person for us to talk to. Yichen currently works at Endowis as their Director of Business Development. Side note, if you guys haven't yet, I do have an episode where I sat down with Greg, the founder of Endowis. And you can check out the full interview in Season 3, Episode 2 of Control-Alt-Career. Alright, back to Yichen. Aside from his day job at Endowas, he's also the owner and runs Jekyll and Hyde, one of Singapore's most iconic bars. So how does Yichen balance running a bar with a full-time career at a fintech startup? And how did he even get into the bar business in the first place? I'll hand over to Yichen now to share his fascinating story. Welcome to the podcast. Super, super happy to have you here today. Thanks for taking time out of your day. Thanks so much, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. So kind of wanted to start at the beginning of your career journey. You grew up in Singapore, went to the US to study. Why did you decide to go to the US to study? And how did you pick what you wanted to study? Yeah, so I grew up Mormon. So when I was in school in Singapore, I went to local school for eight years. I ended up doing pretty badly. So my mom was like, you can either go to boarding school, or you can go to SES, which is the American school in Singapore when I got in there. So I think it was a natural progression of getting a high school diploma and then going to the U.S. for school. But at the same time, because I had grown up Mormon, my mom gave me three options, which was Brigham Young University in Utah, in Idaho or Hawaii. And I picked Utah because it has the best academic record, right? And I didn't want to be stuck in an island for another four years because people were like, why don't you pick Hawaii? And I'm like, dude, it's like super boring. But yeah, when I went over to college, I actually didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I actually started in psychology because I had taken a psych class in high school and really enjoyed it. And then I was also watching this TV show called Criminal Minds. And they basically do forensic psychology for the FBI. And I was like, okay, this is super cool. So did that and I realized I probably don't want to have to go to grad school after that and get your master's or PhD or whatever. I didn't want it to be too complicated. And so I decided to switch majors to finance. When I switched over to finance, I was taking some of the classes and then I wasn't doing so, so well in some of them also. So my mom was like, hey, I think you're good at talking. She was like, why don't you try public relations? So BYU actually happened to have a good PR program. It's a top five program in the States. And I was like, okay. So I did the prerequisites, applied for the program and then started doing that. But then when I was doing my public relations degree, I realized halfway through, I didn't want to do that too. I think you're getting the pattern. I'm not sure what I want to do and realizing halfway through that it's not something that I want to do. So by then it was my third major and the college, the university said, look, you're not switching a major a fourth time, like finish your credits and get out, which is valid, I suppose. And so I was looking at different internships and all that. And it just so happened I had this professor 
Professor Campbell, super nice guy. And one day he's like, hey, have you heard of Bloomberg? And I'm like, yeah, I've heard of Bloomberg. And he's like, hey, do you want to intern there? And I was like, yeah, sure. I hadn't gone a summer internship yet for, for my sophomore year, right? So he connected me with someone. I interviewed with Bloomberg and then got a summer internship in the Singapore office back at home. But it's a really good internship because it's super hands-on. They expect you to write stories. They get you to start really simple things, just market updates and stuff like that. But by the end, you're actually writing two or three pretty substantial stories. And I think when I was doing that, I was like, hey, this would be really interesting. I should try and find an intersect between finance and, you know, comms. So I was like, hey, maybe I should go into investor relations, which I didn't realize then was actually very hard to crack into. So the next summer, my friend was like, hey, you should apply for an internship at Goldman. And I was like, no, but it's a vampire squid company. Back then it was like a few years after the subprime mortgage crisis and all that. I didn't have the best reputation. But he's like, oh, you should just apply. So I applied. I swear I bombed the first interview, but I guess I did well in the second one. So got there, did a 10-week summer internship, bit of a roller coaster. I swear the first couple weeks it did not go well, but then I really worked hard. And then by the end of it, they were like, yeah, here's your full-time offer. When I was there, I was working in this kind of like documentation confirmations team. And then when I got my offer full-time, I ended up in equity derivatives middle office. So like trading swaps and CFDs which I had like zero experience and zero knowledge. But I mean, that's the thing about GS, right? They like to take people from different backgrounds. So my team had people from finance backgrounds, accounting backgrounds, but also English majors. And then I was a comms major because I think they like that diversity of thought and they figure that you can pick it up and learn. It was really cool. Really interesting to see how the markets moved every day. Very interesting interacting with clients, getting yelled at, not getting yelled at. When you go to Goldman, they really have you focus on something. It's both good and bad, right? Derivatives are a broad topic. You can be trading options, you can be trading swaps and all these different things, but we focus specifically only on equity swaps. So we didn't even focus on any other products. So it was really good in the sense that I got to know something really well, but I realized a year plus in that I didn't want to spend forever doing the same thing I saw my bosses doing. So I think that was my first couple of years out of school. Was it overwhelming when you went into that finance role, given that you came from the comms background? I mean, derivatives yeah. is pretty technical. How was that experience for you? Yeah, the good thing about it is I actually had good people on my team and so they teach you. And, and again, because you're so focused on the specific product and you're not looking at something so broad, you can actually pick it up pretty quickly. I mean, it's a super steep learning curve. I think the first three or four months, I was like, what is going on? But I think by like month five, six, you get a sense of how to do it. After a while, as long as you understand the product structure and you know how to explain it and you know how to book it, you're essentially good to go. So it wasn't something too complicated. And was that something that you were quite interested in? Like when you ended up serendipitously at Bloomberg, were you like, okay, I actually am very interested in finance. Let me try to move more into financial space. I was interested in finance and the markets in general. So I think that's where that was good. But in terms of looking to see what exactly I wanted to do, I told people, you know, two months before I went to Bloomberg, I had no idea I was going there. Two months before I went to GS for an internship, I had no idea I was going there. That kind of thing. Steve Jobs said that life is, you can only look back at it, right? You can't look forward. And I think it really is true in the sense that you literally have no idea what's going to happen. I think some people do. Some people know they're going to be lawyers and they're going to study law, take their bar exam, pass, and then be lawyers for the rest of their lives. And that's great. But I think for me, it's just been a fun exploratory journey. Got it. Okay. So you worked at Goldman for a couple years? Yeah. So for a year and 11 months, I think. I think I resigned just shy of two years. I think back then I was in the US, I was in Salt Lake, and I was getting a bit homesick. And also when I was applying for jobs in the US, they were like, oh, you need a visa, then they just don't call you back. So I was like, okay, maybe it is time to look at home and spend some time with my family, my parents and all that too. 
So I started applying for jobs and coincidentally, one of the guys that I had interned with at Bloomberg was at Uber. And so he was like, yeah, we've got open roles. That was like so really early I, days, right? Relatively early. I think Singapore, it was a pretty small team that I interviewed. I swear I bombed it, but I guess didn't. It's to be a consistent <laughs> thing. You, you think yeah, you did poorly, but you get the job. No, because when the guy asked like, okay, you have the Uber app. If there's one thing you could improve, what would you improve? I, I think my mind just went blank. So I was like, oh, I think the app's perfect. I don't think you need to improve anything. I was just like, oh my gosh, this has got to be the end of it. But yeah, <laughs> I guess the rest of the answers went terrible. So I moved back and I started in the growth team. Growth was basically to figure out how to get our drivers to actually start driving. The great thing about Uber was that I learned more at Uber in three months than I learned at Golden in two years. Because it really was jack of all trades and you had to do everything because it was a small team and just a crazy growth stage at that point i, I remember going in a week early because my boss wanted me to come in and he came back and said oh the project i wanted you to work on is not going on anymore which i found out later was actually autonomous driving so i guess they didn't end up doing it in singapore and then he was like hey we've got this hourly car rental program can you go figure it out i'm like wait but i haven't even started yet but anyway so i just started that and it was basically to try and figure out how to increase our supply by getting people to drive hourly if they didn't want to drive part-time or full time and then scaled that and ended up running vehicle solutions for Singapore, which was basically trying to figure out how to get more drivers into more cars so that we could maximize our supply. So at its peak, I was running a team of like 60 something people, which was pretty nuts for a relatively young age. But that was why it was such an amazing experience because it was no holds barred. It was just like, here's the money, here's the teams, you figure it out. And that was intense, but Got paid less, worked longer hours, but very fulfilling. That's awesome. And I want to get into that. But before that, I wanted to ask you, when you were thinking about moving back to Singapore, did you think about just moving internally or staying in finance? How did Uber kind of come about? Yeah, so I think I didn't want necessarily to stay in finance. I actually did interview at a few different other finance companies or other banks, essentially. But I think what I realized was, I guess I didn't really realize it at that time, but I think it was the sense that I didn't want to be in this place where I was just doing the same thing over and over again, because it's relatively repetitive, right? Like when you're trading securities, there's, there's only so much you can do. I mean, you can switch, you can go and do FX swaps, you can go and do interest rate swaps, but it's the same thing, right? People love it and I can see why and it's great, but it's just not for me. And so I wanted to try something new. I also did not know what industry I wanted to, or what company I wanted to go to. I just wanted to try out tech because it was the, the cool new thing back in the day, which was like five years ago. So when Uber came along, I had used it. I thought it was cool enough. And so I was like, okay, this will be something interesting to try. And I figured, you know, Uber was doing amazing then. Travis was like a rock star. They were raising crazy amounts of money. And I was like, okay, this would be really cool to check out. Yeah. This is actually so interesting because it seems like a lot of these things are more like you kind of just let the opportunity happen to you. Like you were open to the opportunity and then it kind of just led you somewhere and you just kind of followed down that path. Would you have changed anything looking back? Sometimes I was like, should I even have done Goldman? Because <laughs> I was just like, it would have been cooler to just go into a tech company and scale. But I think, again, it's just like looking back and realizing how everything connects. For what it's worth, right? Having Goldman on your resume is great. If you have that, you can interview almost anywhere. People will give you a first interview. If you bomb it after that, that's your own problem, right? But it's helpful having a brand name on your resume. And so when people ask me that a lot of the time, I'm like, you know, the tech companies are cool and all that, but there's something to be said about having some of these other names on your resume still. Cool. So you stayed at Uber and that must have been such a different environment as well. Or, or was it kind of similar in certain ways? It was very different in the way that, I mean, Goldman was very just do the job, right? And at Uber, it was just like, do whatever it takes to win. So it was a completely different environment. I mean, the autonomy we were given was crazy. It was nuts. The amount of freedom we had to make decisions and to 
hire and to fire and to spend was enormous, which is great because you are basically learning how to fail, learning how to scale, learning how to succeed all on a, you know, investor's dime. But that, that's a great experience, like a great career growth experience. Yeah. I mean, anyone I've talked to at Uber, they're like, we would do it all over again. And then we would go back to that period point in time, but we wouldn't do it now. I guess is the way to phrase it. That's super interesting. So you stayed there for a couple of years? A couple of years until the the acquisition, or I guess the white flag was raised. Tell us a bit about that. What was that like when you were at Uber and, you know, they kind of merged with Fab? So I think for us, we were hearing the rumors through the rumor mail and all the news was coming out and all that. But we didn't really know how it would come about, right? But I think that was just one day where on a Sunday night, they're just like, hey, come in for a town hall on Monday at 10 a.m. and please make sure you come in early to pay the drivers and we're like okay i think we know what's going on so we came in and they were like okay grab and uber have reached an agreement uber will be pulling out of all southeast asian markets these are the details please clear your desk by 4 p.m and we're like oh okay cool this is interesting so we started drinking and got drunk by like 4 p.m because we had alcohol in the office went home packed up went out drank and karaoke to 5 a.m and then was like okay we've got no work the next day it was one of those bittersweet things i mean it was an amazing experience and so the way it ended was definitely a little bittersweet but i think it taught us a few life lessons i think one of my friends yuner she said this phrase which has stuck in my mind from then on which is no matter how much you love your company your company will never love you back I've spoken to different friends about these things, right? Some friends would be like, oh, I want to stick in a company because my boss is awesome. And I'm like, if you have a better opportunity, you should go for it. Because if your boss has a better opportunity, your boss is going to go. It's not like your boss can drag you along most of the time. And then secondly, it's not about being selfish. It's about being thoughtful and seeing what is best for you. Because at the end of the day, your company is doing what is best for the company. I don't think there's a single company that I know that would not put its survival above the needs of his employees so i think that was a hard lesson to learn but a good one to learn where you still work hard you still do a good job but you don't tie your identity to a company which i think a lot of us did at uber especially because you guys are working such long hours and really hustling for them were you mentally ready to be like no no we were like what the hell <laughs> but they gave us guarding leave and all that, so I went on a trip with a couple of Uber friends to Morocco and Italy and the UK for like three weeks. Okay, so you made um, lemonade out of lemons. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then I started interviewing at different companies and all that, but then Grab gave me the role and the job scope that I wanted. Because I had been in ride hailing, I think the obvious choice was to move over to ride hailing at Grab, and I would have gotten a more senior position there because I was doing a pretty senior role at Uber. But I was just like, ride hailing there's only so much innovation that i can contribute to right because there's only so many modes of transport until you get into flying cars right then it's really something different and so i was like hey can i move over into the financial group because it would be more interesting for me and i figured there was a lot more room to grow even though i started a bit more junior into that role because i had never touched consumer finance so it was a completely different ball game and so it was a good switch and one where i learned a lot again for another two plus years but I guess your interest in finance was always there, it seemed. Yeah, I think it was always just hiding in the background. My dad actually, when I was younger, would just throw me random articles in the Wall Street Journal to read. So I think that was just like general interest, not like I was a finance geek, but just like general interest in terms of how things worked. 
Got it. So you managed to find another role at Grab, this time kind of combining what you loved in the last two roles into one role. Yeah, exactly. Like a fast-paced environment where you're really growing and all finance, which you are interested in. How was that? How was your time there? It was great. So Grab is technically actually the longest company I've worked at, which is funny because I actually hadn't planned on sticking around for that long. I was just like, let me just do this and then see what happens. I spent a few months doing business development for the Singapore Grab Pay team. It's basically like their payments team. And then a few months into it, my boss's boss, when I was working for an assignment, project was like hey can you come over to my team so i actually spent about a year plus launching credit cards for grab in thailand and the philippines which was super interesting right like didn't know anything about credit cards had to learn end to end like how to structure a credit card how to build it how to work with a partner we were working with Citibank on it and then also got pulled into launching our own grab pay card in singapore which was a prepaid card but with that one i was dealing with the end-to-end ops so i had to go and figure out who to manufacture the card with, who was the card processor. So I was really learning in depth how cards work. That was super interesting because again, consumer finance, again, cards. The only thing I knew about credit cards was how to use it to spend money, right? But like being able to see the ins and outs of it was really interesting. And and I know we'll talk about it later, but even helped me with my bar business after that. After I did that for a year plus, my final role at Grab was, I was reporting to our head of investments and new businesses. So I was doing special projects for him. So we spent the first half of the year acquiring a company that eventually became Grab Invest, doing the DUD, doing some of the fund manager selection. And then my last seven months or so was launching insurance products for Grab. So all in all, Grab was great because I think they were really nice in the sense that they gave me the opportunity to try a lot of different things. So in terms of breadth, it was great. Depth in certain products, definitely. But in terms of breadth, it was fantastic. And it's what also allowed me to get my current role at Dallas. I would love to know, actually, did you have any prior experience in any of these roles before going in? Because it sounds to me like you kind of just figured all of this out as you oh, yeah. got along, no, right? I think my skill set is I can pick things up pretty fast. I think I have a problem sometimes going a bit too in depth. But in terms of building things, scaling things, growing things, that's my forte. And being able to jump into a project, learn what it is, and then be able to execute on it. How did you convince people to hire you into all these different roles? Let's say for grab pay, you didn't really have direct experience in personal finances and growing up company, you know, in, in that space. Oh, I'll be totally upfront. I think um, Uber employees were free headcount for the grab teams. They didn't have to get headcount allocation. And I mean, again, as I said, I always think I bomb interviews, but I think I interview relatively well, I guess. <laughs> it was funny because I swear I didn't. The guy said, when you came for your interview, because we were having coffee, he's like, you came in t-shirt, shorts, and flip-flops. And I was like, no, I swear I was wearing shoes. And he's like, no, you were wearing flip-flops. And he's like, wow, interesting guy <laughs> coming. Because the guy that I was interviewing with came from a bank, right? Like traditional Singaporean bank. Um, and he's like, okay, should be an interesting character. Talks a lot. I was like, great. I guess you stood out. (laughs) I wanted to ask you this question because I think a lot of people who are listening to the podcast are a bit nervous to completely change careers because they're like, I don't have the necessary skill sets or like, I wouldn't even know. How do I even get my foot in the door into this brand new industry? Do you have any advice for people who are thinking about switching into a brand new industry? Enthusiasm and interest is key, right? Now that I'm hiring when I was at Uber and now I'm hiring in Dallas and all that, my take on it is not really what your experience is, right? I mean, obviously, if you're a lawyer, then yeah, I'm sorry. I guess you have to have a law degree and you have to have passed the bar, right? That's a different story. But if you're looking at more generic business, I suppose, I think that's why people have given me the opportunity and I'm grateful is that if you have the enthusiasm, if I can tell you're smart enough, 
I'll give you the chance. And I think people have to realize that a lot of people are in the exact same boat, that they're willing to give people the chance. Obviously, the first company you apply to might say, no, I want someone who is a lawyer. I want someone who is a finance major. I, I want someone who has worked in a tech company before. But more often than not, there are a lot of people that are willing to give someone else a try. And so it's being able to, one, have the, the tenacity to obviously interview at enough places to give yourself that opportunity, but then being able to help people understand why. I think one of the things that drives me nuts during interviews is when we say, why do you want to join Intel? And people say, oh, it's because fintech is an up and coming industry. And I'm like, dude, screw you. Like you can go figure that somewhere else. Right. But if you're like, hey, I want to join Intel because I really believe in your mission. Hey, I really understand where you guys are coming from in terms of thinking about investments. I don't need you to know everything about the company because I know you can only learn that when you're in the company. But it's about that enthusiasm and, and showing that you, you care. And, and I think that's what makes a difference. And if you take enough time and talk enough people, you'll get the job that you want. I think that that's really, really great advice because I think a lot of people are overly nervous and they feel like they have to tick off all these boxes before they can even think about applying. And my feedback for them is always, you know, just try. If you don't take the shot, you will literally never get it. Yeah. Well, in applications, <laughs> it's just like never cold apply. Or if you cold apply, you better find the person yeah. and like message them, right? Yeah, I think, as you said, in a lot of your previous roles, it was like through a connection, like a friend you met or like someone you knew that kind of yeah. got you in, in the door yeah. into these roles as well. Relationships matter, for sure. For sure. Cool. All right. So, you know, you stayed at Grab for quite a period of time. You weren't expecting yeah. yourself to stay there for so long. And I know that you also bought Jekyll and Hyde, this bar in Singapore around the same yep. time. Maybe yep. walk us through that yep. timeline a little bit. No, so it's actually right before. So when I was at Uber, oh. I was just like literally sitting there in my very um, limited amount of spare time. And it was just like clicking on the internet. In one instance, I was just like, oh, let me just look at random businesses that you can buy. I was on this website called businessesforsale.com. And it said, established cocktail bar in Tanjong Pagar for sale, which is right near our office. So I clicked on it, looked at the photos, and I was like, hey, it's Jekyll and Hyde. I know this bar. So that's when I reached out to the owner. I had a business partner, and then we started chatting. And he was like, yeah, I'm selling for reasons X, Y, and Z. We've been around for a few years. I've gotten married. I need to go and focus on some other stuff. So it was like... Oh, this would be a really cool opportunity. I had just sold my place in the US, so I had a bit of spare cash. In retrospect, I should have just put it in Amazon stock or something like that. I've done a lot better financially. But anyways, I was like, hey, this would be a really cool side investment, which can pay me a dividend. And then I can just do my full-time job, which, you know, in hindsight, this is really, really, really 2020, where I'm just like, holy crap, it is definitely not that way. I've had to spend so much more time on the business. But yeah. I want to take a step back though. That's very interesting that you randomly decided to buy a business because I don't think people would randomly think to buy a business, right? Most people would be like, oh yeah, maybe I'll start a business myself. I don't think a lot of people yeah. think, oh, maybe I could actually just buy a business. So I think the thought process around that, if you're looking at it from a pragmatic perspective, is this. Starting a business or starting a bar or starting a restaurant means that you need to take time to build up brand credibility, brand awareness, helping people understand you. I mean, obviously, if you're a hot restaurant and all that, maybe it's fine. But a lot of the time, it's very hard to build out their brand equity. And Jekyll and Hyde it was one of the first cocktail bars in Singapore and had back then already five years of brand equity. And so I was like, hey, this would make a lot more sense because you're able to buy a brand with existing customers that are walking the door the first day. It's the same thing as buying a property that's tenanted. It's almost the same kind of concept. Right? It's a business that has a name, has a reputation, has opening hours, has a team, has stock on the table already. It's easier for you to be able to figure out how to scale the business or to improve it rather than trying to from scratch. Again, pros and cons to both, but there is a validity when it comes to just buying a business that is already existing. 
Agree, agree. But I think it's so interesting. Did you know people who were buying businesses, for example? No, like, I'm telling you, Jennifer, it's like super random. <laughs> yeah. As gone with my career, this was very random. I mean, my dream job one day, I've told everyone this is when I am rich and have all the money in the world, I'm going to be a hawker and just cook good food for people, work two or three days a week, cover my expenses and just feed them, right? And I think the underlying thing there is I do enjoy food. I do enjoy drinks. I do enjoy letting people be happy or make them happy through food and drink, right? And I think this was kind of the extension of it. I think for me, I look at businesses also in ways of how you can make money and all that, but obviously some are more interesting than others. But shout out to everyone. If you want to build a scalable business or start something, don't do F&B. There are a lot of other ways to do it. I mean, F&B really is a passion project. Yes, you can build a quote-unquote empire out of it, but it's easier said than done. There's a lot of competition in that space and... Margins are crazy. But okay, you didn't plan on buying a business. You kind of happened on this and then you were looking at a few different businesses and then FNB sounded the most exciting to you. So you're yeah. like, okay, I'm going to go buy this business. Yeah. I don't know if you're open to sharing like how much you... Oh yeah, I won't share the exact number, but I put in a couple hundred grand roughly into it. Got it. Hey guys, I'm interrupting my very own episode to let you guys know that I have a one-on-one career coaching program designed to help you go from lost and frustrated with your corporate job to living and crushing your dream career. So if you too want to be like Yichen and build a fulfilling, purposeful career, then send me a message or follow me on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore for more information. Link to my IG profile is also in the show notes to today's episode. All right, back to the episode. So maybe tell us a little bit about this journey after you bought Jekyll and Hyde. I had a partner then. He was also from Uber and then went to Gojek and was working there for a bit. And then we hired a manager and a few months in realized he was stealing money and stuff like that. So we fired him. And then my business partner was like, oh, why don't I come and run the business, like quit my job? So he did that, but unfortunately kind of lost interest pretty quickly. So I think after a few months, I was like, hey, dude, you're running our business to the ground. Let me just buy you out. Right. And so then I just started running the business, which one thing I have to note is that you have to make sure that you have a supportive company if you're doing this full time. And my grab colleagues were very supportive of the business. My boss was very supportive whenever we had events and all that they would host at Jekyll whenever they needed drinks they would ask me to help them supply it and all that and so that's key obviously some companies will not be that cool about it but I think a big part of that also is you have to perform right if you're performing well at your job then people are more inclined to help you because they know it's not affecting your day-to-day work and yeah it was really tough because you're trying to figure out how to run this business and obviously at Uber and Grab you have infinite money at your own business you do not have infinite money and so we're learning how to manage cash flows learning how to manage expenses learning how to understand like the different costs and all that is very key as you said margins are thin and so being able to manage that is very important and then the COVID hit right which was nuts because very quickly it was just like what is going on why are they shutting everything down and then what do we do how do we survive so we started selling bottled cocktails which every other cocktail bar started doing which makes sense and it was doing okay but then we had to deal with a very annoying or maybe greedy landlord essentially who was just like hey if you want to continue to stay you have to sign a personal guarantee if not we don't want you and i was like yeah well i don't want you either because i'm stupid but not that stupid to go and sign another personal guarantee during COVID. so we were actually going to shut the business down. I was just like, okay, this is sunk cost, done, that's it. Uh, let me get out, go work hard, make my money back and, and figure things out. But again, and as I mentioned, and I think this is where where this helped a lot, that seven, eight years of brand equity was key because if Jekyll and Hyde wasn't Jekyll and Hyde, 
we would have closed and no one else would have cared. But when the news came out and the papers that we were planning to close, the support was crazy. People started ordering a lot of bottle cocktails. What can we do? Can I help you find a new place? People were asking. And that was what allowed us to actually get through you know, this really crazy time. And we actually ended up growing bigger and doing better. And I think life sometimes is really all about that very short period of time, one month or two months. Because sometimes if you can't make it through a very short period of time, you die. But actually, if you're able to make it through, you know, one or two or three or four months and you're able to get it out of that rut, you actually end up doing better. And I think life is a bit like that, where you have to be able to push through some of the craziest times. So that was one big life lesson that I learned out of that. That is honestly crazy for you to have been dealing with all of this on the side during COVID. But that's crazy that you guys managed to come out of that stronger, better, and have the community support. Before we go deeper into this, I want to take a step back. When you were deciding to buy this business, what were some things that you thought through in terms of the financial decision? I think when we were looking at it, we were trying to understand the value that came out of it. So I think that they showed us how much they had spent in renovation, the effort and the work that had taken into it, and they had spent quite a lot. And so when we bought it, we were buying it at quite a substantial discount. So I think it was a matter of like, do you take the 100 plus 200 grand and go and build something completely new? Or you take the 100 and something, 200 grand and buy something that's already built? And sure, granted, you can build something completely new out of that. But again, you're building something with no affiliation, no brand equity. And so... If you can buy something that has been already built, that they've spent way more, we were paying basically a third of what they had spent in terms of renovation, plus you get to buy a good brand. Why would you not do that as opposed to trying to build something from scratch? So I think that was one of the key considerations when it came to why we we thought about buying the business as opposed to starting something. Were they profitable at that point in time? They were marginally profitable because they they pushed their costs down a lot. Got it. So basically when you took over the business, you're like, okay, I'm putting in this amount of money into an established business so I don't have to build something from scratch. And also you already could see the money start to come in. Were you thinking it was like a relatively safe investment? Were you expecting to spend this much time on the the bar? I guess, no. were you thinking like, oh, you, you there was like already a team, the team can just run exactly. it. Exactly, you think the team I'll can run passive. it, but I think it's also, yeah, you don't realize that the people management is the biggest part of it, right? It's not anything else. It's actually about the team and people management. We still hire and, and fire the right and wrong people. So it is a journey. It is a constant journey. It has not changed in the past three years. How much time would you say, actually, that you spend on running this side hustle? Probably like 20 hours a week. The weekend, I spend a lot more time on it, right? Because in the day, I'm just kind of like focusing on more of like the day stuff and all that. But yeah, it, it's actually pretty intense. What else surprised you, I guess, with running this on the side? The people one was definitely the biggest thing. I think it's two things, right? But the biggest piece of advice I would give people is like, if you're buying a business, starting one, it doesn't matter what you're doing, but if you're doing a business, accounting is the biggest thing. It's the most important thing. And so before you start anything, hire the accountant, essentially accounting firm, because that is key. If you cannot figure out your numbers, you cannot figure out anything else in your business. Well, I guess the other lesson is that not all friends are friends. One, some people will be like, hey, can I get a discount? And you're like, dude, if you're a friend, you would just pay full price, right? And then secondly, the good and bad thing about owning the bar, and I hope I don't piss off customers, but people love to name drop, apparently. Like when I'm not there half the time, my stuff like, oh, someone came to say, oh, I know the owner. Can I get this table? People, I guess, also leverage their network to yeah. get perks at your bar. <laughs> and I guess any advice on the hiring side, like things you've learned along the way? Good question. I think base is hardworking and honest, Okay. But hardworking and honest doesn't cut it because if you don't have good customer service or you aren't good at ops and all that, at the end of the day, you're still running a business, right? So you have a baseline, but in terms of finding people, it is tough. 
Finding a good team is actually not easy. I think whether you're in the corporate world or whether you're running the bar, it's actually pretty tough. Tough in terms yeah. of like finding the right right fit works well with you, but also just has like the right combination of things that you want because everyone has different needs. Like Jen, if you are running a business, you probably have slightly different needs than me because we've got different personalities, so you have different ways of working together too. So I think that would be part of it. Have you found a good way to test this out before hiring people? Not really, actually. Mine is trial by fire. I still think that's the best way to really know what it's like to work with someone. Cool. So you were running this all on the side while you were at Grab, and you still continue to do it today. Yeah. yeah I mean, now you have a new job. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. I think like moving over to Endowas is a very thoughtful decision um, in terms of wanting to move. I had done quite a lot at Grab, learned a lot at Grab. But I felt I was kind of hitting this plateau where Grab is getting very big, and in terms of scaling the corporate ladder, is getting very tough. Like in the early days, it was a lot easier to get promoted and grow and all that. But as you become a conglomerate and a big company, it's a lot harder to switch or be able to climb the ladder. And I think it's not even about climbing the ladder; it's about the impact that you can make and the decision making. So at Uber, the decision making was all in my hands. At Grab, I had almost no decision making. It was basically to do what I was told in a sense and execute, which was fine because they were super interesting products and projects. And Dawas, I. Known Sam, the CIO, for a year plus already. I was already an Andalus customer, and we had always joked about me, like, "Oh, it'd be fun if I worked for you. It'll be fun if you worked for us." Ha ha ha, that kind of thing. And actually, just so happens that my boss actually said, "Hey, you should go catch up with uh, the Andalus guys and see how it's going," because we had talked to them about some other stuff. And I went over. We were chatting, and like the conversation came up again. And they're like, "Hey, we're actually hiring," and we we're like, "Hey, this is actually the right time." But I think the reason why I joined in Dallas, as opposed to like other companies, because I started interviewing at some other places, was a few different things. One, the team is solid; like the people that they have brought into the company have a wealth of experience, but more importantly, are super nice still. Two, really believe in the mission of the company. You've spoken to Greg and all that, but our mission really is to help people to invest better so they can live better today and live better tomorrow through to their retirement. And being able to have an impact there, being able to be a bit more senior and being able to contribute and make decisions was something that was attractive. And I'm in my early 30s or like closing on my mid 30s, I guess. Crap. But I knew that the next place I moved to wasn't somewhere I wanted to be for one or two years and then move on. It's somewhere that I want to be for the next five or 10 years and, and build something meaningful. And so, and Dawas was the place for that. That's super cool. And again, I'm picking up that it was also through relationships that you kind of happened upon this opportunity. Yeah. Um, it was yeah. very much you built your own relationships separately, and then kind of just organically happened. And that's super cool. Was it a tough decision leaving behind Grab, or you knew it was just like the right time to move on? It, it was. It was actually a pretty easy decision. Although Grab, right before I tendered, gave an equity refresh, which was a pretty decent amount. It gave pause for thought for like. Five minutes, and I was like, "Okay, I can sacrifice money for what I'm more interested in and passionate about." And actually, one question I would love to ask you is, when did you figure out what you were passionate about, and how did you go yeah, about figuring that out? I'm still figuring that out, but I mean, there are things that I am passionate about. For me, my mind runs at a million miles a minute in in the sense that I think about a lot of different things. It's great. It also drives people crazy, including myself. But I guess at the end of the day, it really is just about. Testing things out, trying things out—that's the only way you know, right? I mean, you can't know that you love something until you do it. You can't know that you love chasu、uh, fun until you try it, right? You don't truly know until you try it out, and so it's about taking that risk, right? It's taking a leap of faith and saying, "Hey, let me see how this goes, and if it doesn't, it's okay. I can find something else to do." And and not everyone's in the same boat. Some people have more obligations, they have more responsibilities, and it's not as easy to do that. I, I fully acknowledge that. At the same time, though. 
again, easier said than done, but until you really take some of these risks, you're not able to really have fun in life. Yeah. And I think that that's a very fair point. It's a lot of times like just about acting on these things and testing them out, see if it works out. If it doesn't, then you iterate and move on. Exactly. And asking, it's just like, if you never ask you, you never know what the answer is. Yeah. I guess for you, it seems like you've got three big passions, food, tech, Mm. and finance. And it's pretty amazing that you have been able to combine all of them into your life. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people are really nervous about. They're they're like, if I find my passion, do I just have to pick one? There's so many things I'm interested in. So would love to know how you've been able to kind of balance all of these and, um, (laughs) you know, juggle all these things. (laughs) I don't. I, I really don't. This is like the one question I always get from people. And I'm just like, guys, I'm running like a chicken without a head half the time and like going batshit crazy about different things. People think it's easy. They're like, how do you do it all? And I'm like, I am doing it all. But it is a roller coaster, right? There's so many things. Like right now we're opening another restaurant and bar and we've had some issues with authorities. We have to update that. We are behind on like fundraising. We're behind on construction and all that. Now we're on track, thankfully. But before then it was quite the roller coaster ride again. And it's just like, oh my gosh, this is nuts. My partner, she's always thankfully supportive, but sometimes just like, what are you doing? Few things that have been formative for me. One, I spent two years on a Mormon mission, going around, talking to people, harassing people, getting harassed by people, selling religion, right? I'll tell you one thing, like Mormon missionaries are great at selling anything because if you can spend two years selling religion, you can sell anything after that. And so, yeah, I spent two years doing that. And I think the biggest lesson I learned there was the value one of hard work. But the second is that I can do hard things. Look, in school and all that, I was quite a slacker. But I think I learned then that, you know, I can push through things. This was very regimented. Wake up at seven o'clock, seven to seven thirty, like eat breakfast, seven thirty to eight thirty, get ready for the day, eight thirty to nine thirty, do your scripture study, nine thirty to ten thirty, do it with your mission companion, and then you go out and you know, pound the streets for like ten hours. And then you really get rejected for ten hours and you go home, sleep, wake up, do the same thing over again, right? Second uh, Goldman was Goldman at I don't have to explain it. It was crazy. And then Uber was even more intense than Goldman because we were in this crazy war with Grab. And so we were working for like 15 hours a day, 12 to 15 hours, eating in the office, not working out enough, like getting fat, whatever. So I think I I can do these things. I'm built for it, I guess now. And, And it's not that I'm built for it. I've built myself up to it. And so being able to juggle these things is part and parcel of who I am to a certain extent. If I'm not doing enough things, I get bored and I end up thinking about some other random crap to do anyways. So, so I think as part of that, I've been able to try and utilize that and, and utilize left brain, right brain, try and meld everything together to survive. That's so fascinating because then my follow-up question was going to be, have you ever thought about turning Jekyll and Hyde to your full-time business? And I no. feel like now uh, yeah. I, I know the answer is going to be no. People ask me that, right? <laughs> I mean, we're expanding the, into the second business. The valuation of my initial investment has grown by quite a good amount, actually, on paper. I mean, from that perspective, it's about really pushing through. Like, we're looking to scale the business into a group of like three or four or five different uh, restaurants and bars, right? And then we'll see what happens there. But I want to find a full-time CEO or like GM to run the businesses and then continue doing what I like at Dallas. And it's because you have two very different things that you're very passionate about. And so yeah, you feel like you don't want to give up either yeah, of them. Yeah, they're completely different things, right? Yeah. yeah. And how did you decide that this was going to be the side hustle as opposed to, I don't know, Andalus or, or something in the finance space, you know? <laughs> <laughs> For one thing, the day jobs all pay a lot more than the side hustle. Again, I'm sure if I did it full time and really scaled it, I'm sure it might be a different story. For what it's worth, what I'm doing is interesting, but I have not had the balls to do 
it full full time, right? I mean, a lot of people do that. A lot of people really jump off the deep end and run their F and B full time. So kudos to them. And some of them are doing great. Some of them are not doing so well. But it doesn't matter, right? They've had the strength to do that. I'm still playing it a little safe. One playing it safe, and then two, I really do enjoy my job, right? Like I really enjoy working in Dallas. I really enjoy what I'm doing with my team and all that. And so yeah, I think I'm just not willing to give it up. Got it. And you mentioned that you guys are looking to expand into another bar. Congrats! Are you allowed to share more about that? It's a World Fifty Best Bar that we're actually reopening that had just ended its lease and closed during COVID, and so we're doing a JV with uh, this group. That has it okay. to start a new FNB group. Okay, so you guys are thinking like it'll be an FNB group with a few different bars and different restaurants in there, and you will be looking to work with established brands. I think what we've realized is that distressed assets are actually pretty good. So I don't know, we might try and find more distressed businesses. This, this is, is so fascinating. Are you just doing this by yourself? Oh yeah, no. So I have a bunch of investors, and then the JV partners, uh, a bigger group that they have properties in like Bali and Niseko and Singapore and all that. And how did you find these investors? Like, how did you get them? On board. Yeah, good question. A lot of them are friends and family, and then a lot of them are just my wider network. And is there a huge amount of investment needed to go into the FNB space? Is that why you would yeah. need investors on board? Yeah, because I mean, at the end of the day, to be able to scale the business, to be able to build new spaces and all that, uh, you do need to put in a, a decent amount of cash. As you said, FNB is cash intensive, but the payout. Uh, can be minimal or maximal, depending on how you look at it. So, is the investment mostly for purchasing distressed assets and in renovating? Yeah, like renovating, and then yeah, enough capital to purchase one more business or start one more business. I guess what's the long term plan for you? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, either we run it and someone pays and and we get dividends from it, or like there is also a, a plan to see if there are. PE firms that would buy out in like the next five years or so, but we need to get it to we like the whole restaurant group, for example. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's so fascinating. I think it's super cool that you're able to do this on the side because I know people who have run restaurants before in Hong Kong, and it's definitely a tough job. So amazing that you've been able to do this on the side as well. So just kind of closing off the interview with just a couple personal questions. Yeah. One of the questions that I ask every single one of my guests on the show is, you know, in the Western world, there's this idea that if you follow your passion, eventually the money will come. Whereas in Asia, in Asian culture, it's very much like, hey, you should just focus on making the money. And then once you get good at your job, the passion will come. What are your thoughts on this, given that you've lived and worked in both Western world and also in Asia? That's actually a really good question. I, I haven't really thought about it from the perspective. This is going to be a long-winded answer, but let me start with an anecdote first, I suppose. So when I was going through the local school system, I did well for the first few years and then just went downhill from there, right? The Asian or Singapore education system is very much about you know, working very hard, studying certain subjects, hopefully doing well in it. If you don't do well, you're down one path. If you do well, you're down another path and that's it, right? That is your life trajectory. And I was doing terribly at certain subjects. When I went to SAS, when I went to the American school, the American system allows you to choose what you're good at and what you're bad at, right? And if you're doing well at, say, English and history, you can take college level classes in high school. If you're doing bad at math and science, you choose a lower level class. But they look at it more holistically, right, as a balance. So I've always told my friends and my partner, I was like, hey, if we have kids, I would love for them to go to local school for the first few years to learn hard work and how to do things and then put them into like a more Western system where they learn how to be more emotionally available or whatever, right? Be able to not stifle their creativity, essentially. And I think it's the same thing with this, right? To a certain point, uh, the American or Western, you know, follow your passion and all that is bullshit. There's some people who follow their passion and then they're like 40 years in, they're making three grand a month and they're 
like dying as a social worker. I'm not to say that social work is bad. I'm sorry. I'm just giving it as an example. Or like as a teacher, right? Teachers are notoriously underpaid in the U.S. and they're passionate about it, but then they get unpassionate about it, right? And so I don't know if I have a full answer to this question actually, because on the flip side, if you're looking at it where you make all the money and then you figure out your passion after that, I would actually probably lean seventy percent there and thirty percent the passion way. Because if you don't have money, you can't follow your passions a lot of the time, right? If your passion is to travel, if you don't have money, you can't do that. If your passion is to eat, and if you don't have money, you can't do that. If your passion is to read books, uh, if you don't have money, you can't do that either, right? My mom says my grandma used to say this to her a lot of the time, and I fully subscribe to it. Is money isn't everything, but it's sure nice to have, and it's true. Whether you believe in the afterlife, in this life, money matters, and it's what allows you to do things. And so I think chasing money isn't good, nor is it the end all be all. But I think it's important to build a good financial base before you figure out what your passion. I mean, I bought the and, bar, right? If I didn't have money, I wouldn't have the bar. And do you feel like you've been able to balance both the financial aspect and the passion aspect in your life? I mean, I put way too much into the bar, but yeah, I am trying to find a bit more of a balance there. Cool, and I think that's amazing that you've been able to find a side hustle. Actually, even in your main job, I feel like you're very passionate about it. So I feel like you've been able to kind of carve out a role for yourself that has been able to give you both of these, which is, I think, a dream for a lot of people. And just last question for you as we wrap up today's interview: any parting words or advice for someone who's thinking about having a side hustle or just thinking about what they're even interested in, or you know, thinking about starting something in the FMB space? I think from side hustle, start small, test it out, right? Like market iteration is key. So if you want to sell swim shorts, go and like make ten of them and try and sell them first. If you want to do F and B, go and cook it or bake it first. Sell it to people and see how it goes. Because you really need to understand your market before you actually scale. I don't think you figure out your passions. I think your passions find you. Oh my gosh, that was so bloody cliche. But your passions are what interests you, right? And I'll tell you one thing. I think there is the danger of making your passions your professional thing, and then you actually lose interest in it. So be wary. Got it. Cool. I guess that's all for today. Those were all the questions that I had. So really wanted to thank you for taking the time to chat with us here in the podcast today and sharing so transparently about your career journey. I learned a lot from your story, and I think it's amazing that you've been able to do all these cool things. And can't wait to see what else is coming with Jekyll and Hyde and your new bar. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Jeff. Appreciate it. And there you have it, my conversation with Yi Chen Chua. Here's a couple key takeaways that I got from this conversation. One, what I found most fascinating about Yi Chen's approach to business is that instead of starting a business from scratch, he chose to buy an existing business that had very strong brand equity. This is quite different from a lot of my other guests on this podcast, where they mostly started their business from scratch. I really love this alternative approach, as it can be quite tough to build brand awareness and credibility when starting your own business. And there's also a lot of benefits with buying over an existing business, like an existing renovated space, existing inventory, an established business flow, staff, and customers. Two, on pursuing your passions versus financial security. Ichen advises that you build a good financial base before pursuing your passion. With financial security, he was better able to handle the fluctuations that came with the F&B business, especially during COVID. And lastly, a difficult lesson that he learned when Uber was acquired is to not tie your identity to that of a company. While you can work really, really hard and do a really great job, sometimes the destiny of a company that you work at is out of your control. 
Instead, focus on acquiring skills and defining who you are by looking internally rather than on external validation. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Control All Career. Check back here in two weeks' time for the next episode where I'll be interviewing JJ Wu Chang, who went from advertising to starting his own matchmaking service and now a butcher shop. It's a super interesting one that you definitely won't want to miss. So make sure you're subscribed to my podcast to get alerted when it's out. And if you like this episode, do share it with two friends who maybe aren't so happy with their corporate jobs and need a little extra inspiration. I also have a one-on-one career coaching program. So if you're unhappy with your job and looking to build a side hustle or switch careers like so many of the guests on my podcast, well then feel free to reach out to me or follow me on Instagram at ongjennifer underscore for more information. As always, thanks so much for tuning in, guys. I'll see you guys back here in two weeks.